The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. John Fesco. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we are grateful for your love, your kindness, and mercy. Uh, We receive this constantly, moment by moment, day by day, but chiefly in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns and rules at your right hand. We pray, Lord, that as we pause in the middle of this busy day, uh, that you would give to us peace of mind, that we could reflect upon the truth of your word, that we could hear these words of life and be filled with joy, thanksgiving, and praise knowing that we have a Savior in your Son. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The faculty is uh, continuing its uh, sermon series, or I should say chapel series, uh, on the gospel and the patriarchs. And so in that light, what I want us to do this morning is I want us to reflect upon uh, what the patriarchs, in a sense, have to say about the dominion mandate. I think the Dominion Mandate, Genesis 128, is perhaps one of the best-known passages in all of the Bible. But in particular, I want us to see what happens to the Dominion Mandate as it passes through the patriarchal period, but then ultimately as it ends up in the hands of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Adam and Eve first received this command from God, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill all the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I think many Christians are familiar with this idea. We recognize that God gave it to our first parents. But, of course, we acknowledge that they fell and thus, in some sense, disqualified themselves uh, from carrying this mandate out. But we also know that God restored Adam and Eve, evident by the fact that he clothed them in those animal skins, uh, foreshadowing, I think, that perfect robe of righteousness that we receive uh, by faith alone through the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think that as we reflect upon this, that when we think about the dominion mandate and then Adam and Eve's restoration, indeed the restoration of the people of God through the work of Christ, that we tend to think that perhaps the dominion mandate has been given back to us again and that it is ours uh, to carry out. And often that is the case that when you read uh, literature from various corners of the church, uh, it is uh, that mandate that we as the people of Christ are supposed to carry it out. But one of the things that I want to impress upon you this morning is always to think about the scriptures, but particularly this uh, text in mind, the Dominion Mandate, always ask the question, what difference does it make that Christ has come? What difference does it make that Christ has come? Do we merely uh, return back to the garden because of the redemption of Christ, only to be given the mandate once again? Or can we say that we have to refract the dominion mandate through the glorious light and revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, you can kind of guess where I'm probably going to go with that. All right. Well, what I want us to do is first let's think about the, uh, the patriarchal narratives 
and how they slowly and progressively unfurl what we can say is the transformed dominion mandate. There's a sense in which it has been transformed. We read, for example, in Genesis uh, 12, 2, and 3, when God first made that covenant promise to Abraham and called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, it's important that we recognize what this is. Yes, God gives to Abraham his covenant promise. And yes, he promises to bless him. But remember what the Apostle Paul says about these very statements in Genesis. In Galatians 3.8, in the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations uh, shall be blessed. Now, when God reminds Abraham of this promise later on in Abraham's life, I think that we can begin to hear the faint echoes of the original dominion mandate. In Genesis twenty-two seventeen, he says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand is, uh, that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies." Notice that language. I will multiply you. I will make you a great nation. But in particular, remember what God tells Abraham. He says, through you, all the nations shall be blessed. It's a promise that has global ramifications, that it extends throughout the earth. But in particular, I want to emphasize this point. Recognize that it's a promise. It's a promise. As God was faithful to his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I think we see greater revelatory clarity the more that redemptive history begins to inch forward. When Isaac sent Jacob to Laban to preserve his life from Esau, something about impersonating his brother and stealing a birthright all of a sudden made him a marked man, he says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you. Notice this language. I do not believe that that his father is merely invoking spiritual stuff, hallmark language. You know, we can always, as uh, somebody once told me, you can church it up, right? You can make it sound fancy when you use, you know, kind of biblical phraseology. I don't think that that's what his father is doing, but rather his father is invoking that language of the dominion mandate. But notice, it's no longer be fruitful and multiply, but rather God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. And he says in that God would give you the blessing of Abraham. In other words... The very promise that God gives to Abraham is the dominion mandate, but it's been transformed in that it is no longer command, do, but rather it is gospel promise, receive. 
and that the text, be it ever so gently, ever so quietly, is insisting that that Adamic command that Adam and Eve first received is now promise. That where we failed, collectively in Adam, God will succeed. Where Adam was faithless, God will be faithful and that he will do so, as Paul tells us in Galatians 3, to the seed to whom it was promised. Not seeds referring to many, but the seed referring to one, namely Jesus Christ. When Jacob wrestled with God and Jacob clung to him and refused to let him go until he received a blessing, what is it that God said to him in Genesis chapter 35, verse 11? I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come for you, and kings shall come from your own bodies. Body. No, no longer is humanity required to fulfill the dominion mandate as a condition of living in God's presence, but rather the blessing of the gospel comes through God's gracious promise, and he meets the condition, and he fulfills the Adamic command through Christ, the last Adam. I think with this, seeing how the dominion mandate gets refracted through the patriarchal narratives, as we look to Christ, it's important that we see how this all comes together. I think one of my favorite things to do whenever I'm preaching or teaching is whatever text you happen to be standing upon, throwing a line to Genesis, throwing a line to Revelation, and then pull so that you can see how it all connects together. As I said, we know that from a number of New Testament passages of Scripture that Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Christ redeemed us, Paul writes in Galatians 3.13 and following, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. But what we may not realize, as much as we see that clarity from Paul and the connections between Abraham and Christ, is that Jesus himself takes up the very words of the Abrahamic covenant in the Great Commission. We may not know this. Now, Dr. Baugh knows this. He knows this because he, he reads the Old Testament uh, in Paul's language, in Greek, rather than in Hebrew. No, no, no shade intended towards our Old Testament colleagues. But as Dr. Bob will remind you, he says, Paul quotes the Septuagint more than he does the Hebrew, right? But when Jesus gives the Great Commission, he says in Matthew 28, 18 and 19, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Panta ta ethna baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What is it that God tells Abraham in Genesis twenty-two seventeen that echoes that dominion mandate language, but now it's been transformed from command to promise? I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of your enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations, panta ta ethna, of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. 
Here Jesus takes up this very language of the covenant promises given to Abraham. And he says, go and spread the gospel to all of the nations. And what was it that God told Abraham through you? All of the nations shall be blessed. So when we look at the dominion mandate through Christ's statements and through the patriarchal narratives, in a fallen world, we always have to refract it through the glorious light of Christ. We don't carry out the dominion mandate through our industry, through our prolific procreativity, or with the sword, but rather armed with the gospel, we carry the Christ-refracted dominion mandate uh, by promiscuously propagating the gospel, by promoting foreign and home missions, and armed with the word of God, we tell others of the glorious gospel of Christ and how it has saved sinners like us. We go forth in a spirit of love, not one of conquest. And despite the fact that we expect the gospel to spread throughout the world because of God's faithfulness, this doesn't mean necessarily that the church shall ever become culturally dominant. I think we hear the dominion mandate. We know its global extent. We hear Christ saying, go into all the nations, spread the gospel. And so we expect the gospel to spread throughout the world. And indeed, there's a sense in which it has. I mean, there was a day when the, the sun would set on the gospel in the sense that only a small number of people knew about it, but now the gospel is spread uh, throughout the globe. And for this, we should rejoice. But just because it is spread throughout the globe does not mean, therefore, that the church is supposed to rise above everyone else and thus conquer the world and thus become culturally dominant. We must remember that it is our crucified Savior that has given us the dominion mandate as promise in the Great Commission. And if it is Christ who faced persecution and suffering, then this side of glory, we too should expect it. We too should expect to suffer persecution, to suffer challenges, to suffer setbacks. But that does not mean that Christ's promise fails to come forth. I think perhaps some of the lines, one of the lines from the book of Exodus has always struck me. And I wonder whether or not it has hit as many people in the church as, as I wish it would. But in Exodus chapter 1 verse 7 we read, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. I think it's a proleptic promise of God saying, I'm making you fruitful. I'm multiplying you. I'm fulfilling my covenant promise that I gave to Abraham. But even in the face of God's faithfulness, remember that his people were still under Pharaoh's thumb in, in, in Egypt in, in a state of slavery. They were being fruitful. They were multiplying. God was being faithful but they were nevertheless still suffering. So just because the church is not in a culturally dominant position, just because the church may be persecuted, ostracized, does not mean that God is not being faithful. In this respect, we must always remember that this side of glory, the church will always wear the garments of Christ's humility and scorn until we see the new Jerusalem Descending from the clouds 
and the Lord Jesus Christ coming to complete all things. And it's there in the book of Revelation that you see that beautiful picture of the new Jerusalem descending out of the heavens, a city temple. And what is it filled with? With just an innumerable host of image bearers, those who bear the image of the last Adam. And I think, obviously, it's no surprise or no simple coincidence that the Bible ends as it had begun when God told Adam, be fruitful, multiply, fill all the earth and subdue it. And this city temple descends, which is the size of the known world, when you do the math, and it descends, and it's this city temple that comes out of the heavens, and it's filled with these image bearers, the image bearers that reflect the image of the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you reflect upon the dominion mandate, do so by looking at it through the patriarchal narratives. See how this command has turned into a promise. Do not feel as if you have great work in front of you when you look at the dominion mandate, but rather rejoice in knowing that Christ has taken up that work and he has been faithful And he has fulfilled it and is fulfilling it yet. And rest and rejoice in the finished work of the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful for your faithfulness to your promise. And that when when we fell in Adam, you could have judged us rightly and righteously. But yet you had mercy upon us. And you sent one who was faithful to fulfill the, the work of the, of, of the failed Adam. We rejoice in knowing that you have what you once gave as command, you have now given to your people as promise. And then indeed you are being uh, faithful to make us uh, fruitful and to multiply us. So we pray, O oh Lord, that when we look at the dominion mandate, we would do so through Christ, that you would... Uh, Fill our hearts with zeal for missions and evangelism that we would desire to tell others of the truths of the gospel, that they too would know Christ as Lord and Savior, and that you would make us faithful until that last day when we see the new Jerusalem descending out of the heavens. Until then, we pray that you would continue to sustain us, provide for us, and bathe us in your love. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.